I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, which is uh, 1 Kings 17, verses 7 through 24. 1 Kings 17, uh, 7 through 24. And uh, we're continuing a sermon series this week that we actually began last Sunday, um, looking at part of 1 Kings, and specifically uh, the relationship between the prophet Elijah and King Ahab. And um, last week, Peter preached on the the, uh, last little bit of chapter 16, um, where we see the transition to power for Ahab, and then uh, the beginning of chapter 17, where God actually sends the prophet Elijah to Ahab um, in response to Ahab's idolatry and worship of Baal and, and really leading all of Israel into that idolatry. And, uh, and God has Elijah declare a drought and then sends him actually uh, to be protected from Ahab uh, east of, of the Jordan River back to where the Israelites had gathered before they had come into the Promised Land um, to a brook in a ravine there where he would be taken care of. And that's where our text picks things up this morning. So 1 Kings 17, verses 7 through 24, and this is what it says. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there, for I have uh, provided a widow to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, A widow was there gathering sticks. Elijah called to her and said, Will you bring me a little bit of water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour will not run out, will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken through Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Why did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him from her arms, carried him up to the room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow that I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house and gave him back to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And this is indeed the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago, the defensive coordinator for the Philadelphia Eagles, Jim Schwartz, implemented what he called the no-hat rule for his players. It was week 17, the final week of the NFL regular season, and after a series of poor performances throughout the year, the Eagles were already eliminated from playoff contention. But the team that they were playing, the Washington football team, still had a chance If Washington won, they would actually end up winning the division and and making the playoffs. If the Eagles pulled off the upset, though, and uh, played spoiler for them and beat them, then Washington's season would be over, too. And with the game set to be played at home in the Eagles stadium, Schwartz wanted to make sure that that's exactly what happened. We've got to have a no-hat rule this week, Schwartz said. We can't let our opponents put division win hats on in our stadium. There's a lot of pride in that, and all of our focus has to be on accomplishing that this week. You hear that sort of thing a lot in sports, don't you? Not on our field, not on our turf, not in our house. Teams take pride in defending their home stadiums. And that's what Schwartz was saying, too. He didn't want to watch another team celebrate winning uh, over them, beating them as a team, but especially winning the division and making the playoffs in his stadium. He didn't want to see them clinch a playoff spot on his turf. Well, in a similar way, there's actually a, a turf war going on in our passage this morning, too. Only this time, it's not two football teams that are battling it out. Instead, it's two gods. We actually saw some of this already last week. So last Sunday when Peter preached on the end of uh, 1 Kings 16 and and how King Ahab ascended to the throne of Israel, we sort of had this, the rest of this narrative set up. 1 Kings 16 verses 19 through 33 describes it this way. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who was another Israelite king earlier in Israel's history, uh, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. And that's how this turf war starts. Ahab, the new king of Israel, begins his reign by importing a new god, a different god, into the land of Israel. And right there in Israel's capital city, Samaria, he builds a temple for Baal. And he puts an altar for him in that temple. And then he puts up a pole to honor Baal's sort of companion goddess, Asherah, as well. In other words, as one of his first official acts as king, Ahab introduces Baal worship to the people of Israel. Now, to be fair, this actually wasn't the first time that the Israelites got mixed up with Baal um, in their history. It happened before. For, incident, uh, for uh, instance, there was the incident with the Baal of Peor in Numbers 25, and that was when the Israelites were actually still in the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land. Once they get to the Promised Land, you actually see them getting involved with Baal over and over and over in the book of Judges. 
And then even during the prophet Samuel's ministry, which we might normally think of as sort of a high point in Israel's history, they were sort of still flirting with Baal worship even then. But this seems different because Ahab seems a bit more committed, maybe, more dedicated, more faithful, if you will, in his worship of Baal. He's not just toying around with the idea of Baal. Instead, he seems to be downright devoting himself to Baal, building him a temple, putting an altar there, putting up a pole for Asherah. And at least part of all that seems to have been the influence of his wife, As we just read, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and it seems that she is the one who introduced him to the worship of Baal. For starters, it's actually right there in her her father's name, Ethbaal. Translated literally, that name means toward the idol or with the god or with Baal. So you can probably guess who Ethbaal was a worshiper of. Second, the text says that Jezebel's father was king of the Sidonians. I'm going to put up a map, actually. Um, It might be a little hard to see, but Sidon is actually the city um, up at the top part of that map, right on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a port city in Phoenicia, okay? So it was up there. Um, It was one of two main cities in that kingdom, Tyre and Sidon, and you often hear of those two going hand in hand in Scripture, and it was just to the north of Israel. Well, guess who happened to be the main deity that people up there worshipped. It was Baal. And so when Ahab brought Jezebel to Israel as his queen, he wasn't just bringing home a new bride to Israel. He was bringing her God with him. The only problem with that was that there was already another God in Israel. And like the eagles tried to do a few weeks ago, he too had a no-hat rule. You see, Israel was Yahweh's turf. The Lord, the God of Israel, was his land, his people. And he didn't take kindly to the idea of Baal encroaching on his territory. You see, throughout the Old Testament, one of the aspects that we see of God is his deep, devoted love for his people, for the people of Israel. He loves them throughout Scripture. We see this. He loves them with a compassion and commitment that never ceases He provides for them with faithfulness that never ends. He patiently remains loyal to them with a dedication that knows no bounds. You will be my people, he says to them in Exodus 6, and I will be your God. And he meant it. All that Israel required or asked for in return from Israel was for them to mean it too. He wanted to love them and remain committed to them, but he also wanted them to love and remain committed to him. Out of all the peoples on earth, God had chosen Israel to be the ones through whom he would spread his blessing to the rest of the world. And so out of all the gods on earth, he wanted to be the one they chose too. But if you're familiar with scripture, you know the story that didn't often happen. Instead, over and over again throughout their history, the Israelites regularly went looking elsewhere for other gods to worship, trying to cover their bases and make sure that they had the right God for this, the right God for that, and the right God for everything else in between, too. It's not like they entirely gave up on Yahweh. When we read about the idolatry of the Israelites in the Old Testament, it often makes it sound like they were trading God in completely for some other deity, but most scholars think that instead it was sort of a both-and kind of thing. That the Israelites wanted to worship God, but they also wanted to, to play it safe and make sure they were covered. Just in case any of those other gods were, were actually real, why not worship them too? 
It's just, you know, sort of a, a good idea, right? Makes sense. Cover your bases that way. And Baal was just the most recent one that they had turned back to. But as we see, as we saw actually last week at the beginning of chapter 17, Yahweh wasn't really a fan of that plan. Not on my turf, he says. And so he hits the Israelites right where they thought Baal was actually going to help them. You see, like Pete mentioned last week, Baal was a fertility god. Specifically, he was the god of rain. And so the reason why you would worship Baal is because you wanted a good harvest. Okay, there was a, a sort of a calculus at work there, sort of a, a trade-off. Worship Baal and he'll send you good rain. You get a lot of good rain and then you'll have good crops. You have a lot of good crops and you'll have a good harvest and you'll have plenty of food on the table come fall. But not this time. Because in the first verse of chapter 17, God sends his prophet Elijah to Ahab to declare a drought. In other words, Yahweh goes after Baal's specialty. You're worshiping Baal so that you'll have a lot of rain. Let's see how that works out. Because there's not going to be any rain for quite a long time. And then to keep Elijah safe from what I'm sure was a very unhappy King Ahab, God sends him to the wilderness back east of the Jordan River, outside the borders of Israel to the Kareth Ravine, where there's a brook for him to drink from and he'll be provided for by ravens. And that's where our text picks up. It starts actually with Elijah on the move again. We don't know how long Elijah stayed at the brook there in the ravine, but eventually even he felt the, ev- the effects of this drought that he had declared because the brook dried up. Not one to forsake his prophet, though. The word of the, of, of the Lord comes to Elijah there and says, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. And so Elijah goes. A few days travel on foot, he comes to the town gate. And just like the Lord said, the first person that he meets is a widow. Now there are a whole bunch of things about this interaction between Elijah and this widow and Zarephath that are interesting, but for our purposes this morning, let's just zero in on a few. First, not everyone in this text seems to be really in on the plan here, okay? This plan that this widow is going to supply Elijah with food. God certainly knows what the plan is, right? And Elijah knows too because God told him, in fact, even we, the readers of this text, know the plan. But you know who doesn't seem to be aware of it? The widow. God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath because there's a widow whom he's directed to provide him with food. And sure enough, Elijah gets there and that's the first person he meets. She's out gathering sticks. And this is where we expect the miracle to happen, right? We expect Elijah to come there and to call out to her and for her to respond in some sort of pious, faithful way. You know, he asks her for food and she says something like, yes, the Lord told me that you would be coming. Follow me and I'll bring you home and take care of you. And she'd lead him to her house and she'd provide for him just as the Lord had promised. Except for that's not what happens, is it? Instead, when Elijah asks this widow for a piece of of bread, she responds bluntly and rather unmiraculously, I don't have any bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have anything to give you. So much for this plan, right? For it to work, it depends on the widow, but she doesn't seem to know anything at all about it when Elijah shows up. 
But that's not all, because not only does this widow not seem to be aware of this plan, she doesn't really seem to know the God whose plan it was either. It's right there in her response to Elijah. He asks for bread. She doesn't have any, but she wants to make sure that that he knows she's not just pulling his leg or she's not hiding something away that he can't have. And so she uses an oath. As surely as the Lord God lives, I don't have any bread. This is actually a pretty common oath in Scripture. It comes up over and over. Throughout the Bible, people use this to give a little more oomph to, to whatever it is that they want to say. As surely as the Lord God lives, this. As surely as the Lord God lives, that. It lends a bit more credibility and authority to what you say next. Only the widow here changes it. She tweaks it a little bit. Instead of saying, as surely as the Lord God lives, she says, as surely as the Lord your God lives. Not her God, not our God, your God. Now commentators disagree on exactly what that means. Some just think that maybe she was being polite. After all, from the look of him, his accent, and probably a few other telltale signs, she was probably able to tell that Elijah was an Israelite. In fact, she might have even been able to tell that he was a prophet of some kind. And so some commentators think that she was simply trying to show respect to Elijah and and his religious beliefs. As surely as the Lord your God lives. They don't think that she was necessarily trying to make some strong religious comment about it's your God but not my God. And yet at the very least, given how this oath normally goes in the rest of Scripture, it probably does mean that Yahweh wasn't her primary God. Maybe she'd heard of the God of Israel. She might even be willing to incorporate him into her personal pantheon of all the different gods that she worshipped. But she's not professing her faith here in God the way that our four young people did this morning. Instead, she was probably a pagan. Which brings up an interesting question. Why would God send his prophet Elijah to a pagan widow up north in Zarephath near Sidon? Certainly there were plenty of widows down south in Israel among Elijah's own people that God could have used to provide for him, right? So why not send him to one of them? Well, the answer is because God wants to make a point. Remember, Sidon, the region where Zarephath is near, is where Jezebel is from. Her father, Ethbaal, is king there. He's king of the Sidonians. He's king of Sidon. What God did we say they worshipped where Jezebel was from? This is Baal country where God has sent his prophet. This is his territory. This is his turf. And that's where Yahweh sends Elijah. Into the heart of Baal land. And he sends him there in order to send a message. But it's not actually a message for the people there, for the Sidonians. It's actually a message for all of those people back in Israel, all of those people who have turned away from the Lord, and all of those people who are worshiping Baal back home. And this is where this text gets interesting. Elijah comes to Zarephath and asks the widow for bread, right? I don't have any, she answers. All I have is a handful of flour in a a jar and a little bit of olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to uh, take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. 
That's how bad this drought has become. Even Israel's neighbors up north are feeling it. In fact, it's become so severe that even a woman wealthy enough to have a house with a dedicated guest room is on the brink of starvation. That was a sign of wealth in the ancient world, by the way. Most, time, most of the time, people lived in one-room houses, and yet this woman has a dedicated guest room. That would have been rare for anybody, but it was especially rare for her because as a single mother, most of the time, a woman in her sort of status would have had to struggle to get by. But at least until this drought hit, she was apparently doing pretty well. And yet even she has found herself down to the last few ingredients for a final meal. But Elijah tells her not to be afraid. Go home and do as you've said, he tells her. Make yourself and your son a meal. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And this is where the miracle happens. It doesn't happen earlier, where maybe we expected it, And it's even not all that exciting right now. In fact, the text is sort of anticlimactic. After the whole buildup here, it simply says, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord. And on the surface, it seems a simple enough miracle, right? By this point in Scripture, we've seen enough from God, from Yahweh, to know that This sort of thing isn't that difficult for him. Given who he is, it's a pretty simple miracle. But there's more to it. Because what this miracle means and where it's been done, that's where the significance is. Because what God is really providing is not just flour and oil in sort of an endless supply. What he's really providing is life. Day in and day out, he's keeping this widow, her son, and Elijah alive during a drought that otherwise should have killed them. Give us today our daily bread. And he does. Each day for these three people. And that's the message that God wants to send. That's the message that he wants all of the Israelites back home in Israel to hear. That's the point that he wants to make. That it's him, not Baal, who is able to provide for and sustain those in need. You see, Israel had turned to Baal to ensure that they would have everything that they needed. But now in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, in the heart of Baal country, God is proving that he and he alone is capable of providing for his people. Unfortunately, though, it's here that tragedy strikes. Again, we don't know how much time passes with Elijah staying at this widow's house. Um, All the text says is sometime later. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. In spite of Elijah living there and Yahweh blessing this woman and her son and miraculously providing food for them, her son becomes sick. And he grows worse and worse until finally he dies. And understandably, this widow's grief is profound, and she sort of lashes out at Elijah. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come just to remind me of my sin and cause my son to die? I've long heard that unless you've lost a child yourself, it's really impossible 
to understand the acute pain of that kind of loss. But in that time and culture, this loss would have been even more acute for this widow because of her social situation. Like I already said, living as a single mother in the ancient world was often tough. And that's because women back then often didn't have the same opportunities for employment that that women do today. Instead, often the way that it worked was that uh, women were dependent on the men and their family and that they were the ones who worked. And so first growing up, a woman would be dependent on her father. Then after she got married, her dependence would transfer to her husband. And then finally, later in life, if she outlived her husband, her dependence would then transfer to her son. And so in a very real sense, when this woman's son dies here, this widow isn't just faced with losing his life. She's actually faced with losing her own life, too. Because her sense of future security, safety, and provision dies with her boy. And Elijah, too, he seems to realize this. He understands the significance, and so he seems just as confused and troubled by this as she is. Why would God send me here to bless this widow and her son only for this to happen? Give me your son, he says to her. And he takes the boy from her arms, brings him up to the room where he's been staying, lays him on his bed and cries out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with? And this is where the second miracle happens. The text doesn't say that God tells Elijah what to do. Somehow he just sort of knows. And he stretches himself out over the boy's body three times and cries out again to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. And it does. This is the first resurrection story in the Bible. The boy comes alive again. Elijah picks him up, carries him back downstairs, gives him to his mother, and in doing so, gives her both his and her life back. And again, there's a message here. Baal is not the true God of life. He can't make it rain during a drought. He can't keep the flour from running out. He can't make sure that there's still oil in the jug. And he certainly can't do this. Because only God, only Yahweh, only the true God of life can provide the sort of life that we need. And that, of course, brings us to the gospel. You see, the truth is that like the Israelites, we're often tempted to look other places for our safety and security too. We're tempted by so many other promises to supply what we need. We're tempted to rely on a myriad of other options that tell us that they can take care of us and provide for us. And yet the message of this text, the message of the gospel, is that only God can do that. He is the God of life, not Baal, not our bank accounts, not our best laid plans and designs on the future, just God. And he provides for our lives in the ordinary, everyday ways we need, day in and day out, as well as with the special, world-transforming, life-changing way that we've experienced through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, like the widow's son, Christ's resurrection wasn't just for him. The same way that the new life of the widow's son also secured new life for her, so Christ's resurrection has secured new life for us. He came, 
He lived among us. He died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to, but he didn't stay dead. Instead, in power and glory, he rose. The God of life raised him up, and in doing so, raised us as well. That's the message of this text. This world is God's turf. He's the one who provides for it. And through his son, Jesus Christ, he's the one who provides for us too. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are the God who provides. You are the God who supplies. You are the God of life. And it's only in you that we find that life. Thank you for sending your son to us. We didn't deserve it, and yet that's your grace and your mercy. And it's because of him that we have a new lease on life and a restored relationship with you. Thank you for being more than enough for us. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.